Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week so far, considering that we are at the halfway point. But I'm glad to be back on the air again, as I always have been with you all, my faithful 101 uh, podcast listeners, or rather I should say 101 History Podcast listeners. This uh, segment of um, Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Lost Survival and Rescue at Sea, is going to focus on um, testimony that, um, how, how do I call it, not so much uh, individual testimony, but more so about what the Board of Inquiry's findings um, led to. In, in other words, what did the Board of Inquiry determine that uh, caused the Bradley itself to sink? Um, in other words, why was it that the Bradley may have been deemed safe to go out into the waters given that she needed um, improvements, that is, internal improvements on the inside with her ship's um, structure, knowing that a storm was um, coming about and we're going to learn um, whether or not Captain Roland Bryan, of course, you know, his body was never recovered, but we're going to learn whether or not Captain Roland Bryan was in fact held liable for the well, for the safety and well-being of his crew, given the conditions he knew that were um, not in his favor to be going out into a storm, but yet he still went about doing so. So, Let's be prepared for uh, what we're going to be discussing. I should also point out that, um, you know, as I've mentioned before, this uh, tragedy with regards to the sinking of the Bradley has obviously hit uh, Rogers City very hard. And we will also learn how um, the people of Rogers City go forward as a community. We certainly hope it would be for the better, but we also have to remind ourselves that uh, it's not like a light switch where we just turn it on and then we turn it off and, and each day things just get better. That It's not the way things work, but we should also be reminded of the fact that in 1958, people's emotions were unpredictable, maybe not the same way like they are in today's unstable world. But when it comes to a tragedy of this, uh, of the magnitude that we're discussing about, or learning about, rather, regarding the Bradley sinking and how 26 of the 35 men hailed from Rogers City, in more ways than others, it's not just a community that's impacted by this, but it's also, it's a larger event. And maybe it's fair to say that people's views on life itself are shaken by such profound tragedies as the sinking of a ship that um, was just more than a um, ship that transported natural resources being limestone from one port to another. It was a ship that represented a community's success. Not just a ship, but she was the flagship of the Bradley Transportation Company. We might be surprised to learn just how quickly everything can go from being wonderful that is flawless with no um, with no previous incidents where um, a company lost a boat 
to where everything you had success-wise could now be gone in a short amount of time. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and be prepared uh, to learn uh, some more um, fascinating information behind Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. Our first leadoff question is the following. How many witnesses testified to the U.S. Coast Guard's Board of Inquiry? So this uh, Board of Inquiries, uh, the Board of Inquiries, uh, what do you call it, hearings, obviously weren't just a couple of days. Um, they may have been a few weeks, but, the, but it didn't last months. So it, it might be fair to say that the Board of Inquiry was able to finish its hearings well before 1958 came to an end. So how many witnesses do you all think testified to the U.S. Coast Guard's Board of Inquiry? All right, well, I'll throw out some numbers. Was it more than 25? Was it less than 25? Or choice C, between 10 and 15? So your choices are the following. Choice A, more than 25. Choice B, less than 25. Choice C, no more than uh, 15. The answer is choice B, less than 25. But the actual answer is 24. So not far off from 25. So there were 24 witnesses who testified. And we know that Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, uh, the Bradley's two lone survivors, testified. We know that Captain Harold Muth and uh, hospital um, first uh, hospital mate um, Warren Toussaint of the Sundew testified. And we know we can say that... Um, People who worked in the Bradley Transportation Company also testified as well. So it's not just the testimony itself isn't confined to just uh, one sector. What proper conclusion, a.k.a. finding, could best be reached by the board regarding the Carl D. Bradley's status the night she sank? What proper conclusion do you all think could have best, been best um, determined based upon the evidence, based upon the uh, testimony uh, from the eyewitnesses, or not just the eyewitnesses, but really the experts, and of course eyewitnesses, you know, I would say like Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, even um, Warren Toussaint, Harold Muth, they, I mean, they didn't personally see the Bradley sink, but but they were out there on those on the waters of Lake Michigan the night of uh, November 18th, 1958. But what proper conclusion do you all think that was best uh, reached by the board? Okay, well, the board itself is a four-man panel. Think of like the Board of Inquiry as like its own version of a, um, an appellate court where, you know, a group of uh, judges um, listen to a case and then they convene to decide how to go about best reaching a decision that favors the party that, um, that they uh, choose to side with. So the four-man panel was, a four-man panel, rather, I should say, unanimously agreed that the Bradley sinking was attributed to consistent hogging 
I'm not talking about the kind of hogging where you um, where you uh, don't share something with other people. You keep it, you know, when I think of hogging, hogging, I tend to think of someone who's uh, keeping everything to themselves and not letting other people have a turn at seeing something or just um, getting to see something up close. It's not that kind of hogging. Remember um, what I had mentioned from a previous podcast that hogging is the bending down of a ship's front being her bow and the back being her stern um, without any middle ground support to where a ship can remain uh, properly afloat on the water's surface. So the four-man panel, or rather the board, has unanimously agreed that the Bradley sinking was attributed to consistent hogging where there was where the ship herself had no middle ground support to remain properly afloat. But the hogging itself was also brought on by added weight. And what was that added weight, folks? Ballast. And of course, this isn't a bad thing, folks. We remember from the previous podcast that we learned that ballast was the ship's best means of defense. Considering that she didn't have a whole lot of cargo uh, transporting, being transported on this load, so when you don't have as much cargo, it's fair to say that you need to add more water to your ballast tanks to even out um, the uh, weight distribution of the, um, of the ship itself. So, yes, the added weight being the ballast was helpful in terms of uh, defense uh, mechanisms in, in going into a storm. However, it's hard to... Um, make any assumptions when you were dealing with 25 to 30 foot waves that did contribute to the ship breaking apart in two. So for the um, Board of Inquiry, not only was it just the hogging to where the um, ship's front and back were uh, stressed out to the point where uh, there was no room for the um, middle ground of the ship to remain properly afloat. And with the hogging, um, it, it just wasn't so much the hogging, it was the fact that the added weight being the ballast could not support uh, the rogue waves that were uh, coming in that um, also contributed to uh, the Bradley um, not just eventually sinking, but causing the Bradley to, um, to engage in other um, deadly uh, maneuvers that um, led to, you know, the men being thrown overboard, uh, thrown overboard, I should say, uh, and with the water in, going into the uh, boiler rooms. I mean, it was basically um, what we would call the the doomsday scenario, folks, where it, uh, where pretty much death was inevitable for this ship. Sadly, so let's just keep in mind that the that the panel is correct and that uh, hogging was probably their best. Um, proper conclusion that they could come to as to why the Bradley sank. Frank Mays's uh, testimony included how well the Bradley herself had performed in the storm prior to the first initial loud thud that sent crewmen running for their lives. So yes, uh, the Bradley seemed to be performing just fine, but that doesn't mean that everything else goes smooth. All it took was, it just wasn't so much a thud 
it's fair to say that whatever internal structural problems there were with the Bradley's um, with the Bradley's uh, middle section that the the wear and tear of the ship's inside from front and back to middle ultimately led to this thud, and it's not just an ordinary no sound of, in terms of thud. This was a loud sound. So. I hate to say this, but it's fair to say that the Bradley was probably on her final leg the night of November 18th, 1958, and and being out in the waters with this um, and the storm was probably just the final straw that sadly broke the the camel's back for this uh, ship. Elmer Fleming oversaw had overseen Frank Mays perform the ballast procedures. Mays told the panel that. The Bradley had been ballasted to full capacity. And Elmer Fleming, you know, backed that up. I mean, he knew that Frank Mays had uh, done his um, tasks properly. Well, no matter how well you perform the tasks, it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to ride out a storm. It doesn't automatically mean that you will uh, make it to your destination safely, even in the most ferocious of uh, Great Lakes storms. While the board accepted Frank Mays, Frank Mays's and Elmer Fleming's uh, testimonies, what else still remained missing per their investigative findings? Is it fair to say that what was missing had to do with the, why the Bradley structure failed? Yes. So, the Board of Inquiry turned to previous inspection records and testimony from U.S. Coast Guard inspectors whom, it, whom examined the Bradley. And 1958 obviously was not the Bradley's finest year. She only had 43 voyages. She was, had spent a lot of time in the dock. And her crew were forced to work on other, were forced to be, uh, work on other ships within the Bradley uh, transportation fleet as a means of um, not only just making extra money, but um, but just gaining extra hours just so that they had something to do. Because it's not, you know, fixing a ship isn't something that just happens overnight. At least that's what we hope. You know, we, we want to make sure that, if, you know, a ship needs to be fixed, that it gets fixed to its um, thoroughest, um, it, that it gets a full thorough examination. In other words, and not uh, cut corners. So 1958, besides uh, internal issues with the ship, there, the ship endured two groundings, that is striking bottom to, striking bottom meaning that the ship uh, hit, hit a rock or went into shallower waters and, um, and ran aground. And then of course there were minor structural deficiencies early on in 1958. But despite all of this, the board still ruled the Bradley to be seaworthy despite issues of repairs that were to occur between the uh, layup time during the winter of 1958-59. You almost have to wonder, did some of these other inspectors fail to realize the severity of just how deficient the Bradley's internal structure was? It, it, it could be possible. I mean, I can't question those people's intelligence. I mean, because I'm not an inspector. 
But at the same time, if a ship has run aground twice by striking bottom, wouldn't it be fair to say that if a ship has struck more than bottom twice, twice or more, that that the ship should have uh, gone um, into layup status much sooner? Absolutely. But we also have to remember, too, that sometimes even company officials don't heed the warnings right away. I mean, this is where people can get cocky. They think, oh, you know, this ship has, you know, she hauled records left and right, 16, 17,000 tons of cargo and had no problems. Well, luck isn't always on a ship's side. Luck isn't always on anyone's side in general, but there does come a point in time where after so many beatings, a ship has to uh, retire. Not permanently, it has to retire for a temporary period of time before it is uh, deemed um, seaworthy of being back on uh, Great Lakes waters. Now, given the Bradley was deemed seaworthy by the uh, U.S. Coast Guard inspectors to being properly prepared for sailing with less cargo going into a storm, what conclusion could best be drawn by the U.S. Coast Guard Board? Well, the Bradley sinking came about as a result of Mother Nature's forces. Well, I think that makes practical sense. Got gale force winds out there, winds from the southwest at 60, 65 miles an hour. You're dealing with, you know, as minimal as 15 to 20 foot waves going as high as 30 feet, and in some instances 35. This is a true field day for Mother Nature. You know, the conditions early on in the day of November 18, 1958, were rather mild, unseasonably warm. But then they went from unseasonably warm back to average temperatures when, a, when warm air and cold air collided. It may have produced an awkward weather front system, but the conditions were just ripe enough, truly ripe enough to where Mother Nature's curveballs proved to be no match for any ships that ventured out onto Lake Michigan's waters that day and into the evening of November 18, 1958. The Board of Inquiry uh, noted in their findings that Captain Roland Bryan and First Mate Elmer Fleming were well aware of the weather forecasts brought before them, being severe gale force winds, to rapidly deteriorating conditions, pardon, pardon me, i got to stay awake here, folks, <laughs> that would uh, make sailing in the eyes of others as totally foolish. So is it fair to say that just maybe the um, Coast Guard Board of Inquiry, based upon this, this finding here, is it fair to say that they could determine that Captain Roland Bryan, in fact, was guilty of of going out into the waters, not just going out into a treacherous storm, but perhaps jeopardizing the safety of his crew. It's possible. We'll have to find out some more here in a moment. Were there more vessels 
anchored or in the process of becoming of becoming anchored around the time which the Bradley was going down on November 18th, 1958. So when you hear someone say, were there more vessels anchored? That means were there more vessels whose boats um, put up for um, dock and decided to wait out until the storm passed? Yes. So the answer is yes, that there were more vessels anchored or were in the process of becoming anchored around the time that the Bradley was going down. The board determined that roughly um, eight vessels, that roughly eight vessels in, were in the state of being anchored to becoming um, anchored per their findings. And, and here you got the Bradley being this lone ship. Well, the Bradley wasn't a lone ship. The Christian Sartori was not far from the Bradley when the uh, when the Bradley sank. Of course, I do find it that, to be a miracle that the Christian Sartori survived. I mean, the Christian Sartori was only about 256 feet long. And you've got a 638-foot um, vessel that doesn't make it. You know, there again, someone could say, why did this one ship make it? And, the, and yet this other ship that was the flagship of the Bradley Transportation Company didn't. I don't have the answers to those to the to that particular question, but um, it was just one of those things that uh, where one ship got spared and the other didn't. But sometimes things like that happen in life that are not always um, within anyone's control, regardless of whether they're out on the waters or not. Although the U.S. Coast Guard Board of Inquiry found no signs of negligence, including inattention to duty, a.k.a. tasks brought beforehand to the individual, Captain Roland Bryan, whose body was one of 15 crewmen never found, was in fact held liable on the grounds for sailing in the storm versus dropping anchor and waiting for the storm to pass over. I have no doubts that Captain Roland Bryan was a great captain. But sadly, a mistake was made. And while none of us are perfect, we do everything we can to avoid making mistakes that in some instances are beyond or are within our control. But when they do happen, we certainly want to be able to have the opportunity to learn from them so that they don't happen again. But in the case of the Carl D. Bradley, um, Roland Bryan was one of 33 men who lost their lives. Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays have survived. But, um, but I, I do know that based upon what I shared with you all uh, from the previous podcast, that Elmer Fleming um, vehemently defended um, his captain. Was that a good thing for him to do? Well, you know, if you're the first mate and you obviously are a step below the rank of captain, in my opinion, you know, yes, you could have a difference with the captain, but you ought to learn how to, to, you need to learn how to agree without being, you need to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. In other words, maybe you don't have to agree on every element, but you need to be able to agree on what's absolutely necessary so that as a team, 
you all can get the job done, even if it means doing some things that in the eyes of the outsiders are risky, that is like taking your ship out into uh, rough waters. And of course, there have been, there were many of stories where men did survive in the, in the harshest of conditions in the month, in the month of November being out on the waters. But I think it's fair to say that in the month of November, in the month of November, more men's lives have been lost on the waters of the Great Lakes than, um, than survival. I guess I just say that because it's not so much that the skies of November turn gloomy. It's just that November is such an unpredictable month that when you go out on the water, everything may look great, sunny, calm water. But the further into your destination, everything can change in the blink of an eye. And that's what happened um, with the events leading up between November 17th and uh, the November 18th. Yes, Captain Roland Bryan was captain of this ship for only four years. But it is a shame that in the eyes of others that if there's one thing that Captain Bryan now will be remembered for in terms of his legacy is that he, um, that the board did in fact hold him liable for sailing in the storm versus dropping anchor. If it had been me, let's say I wasn't the captain of the Carl D. Bradley, but if I had been a captain aboard another ship, I would have said, okay, we, we need to, um, drop anchor and wait this out. Yes. The, um, Yes, company officials might not, they may not like the decision or say the receivers of the uh, material may not like the fact that we're dropping anchor, but freight can be replaced. Human lives can't. That's something to, to be reminded of, you know, um, you know, the elements of Mother Nature we can't control, but we can also control how we wish to um, exercise our judgment and if the storms are that bad, where in this case winds from the south, southwest, were coming at 60 to 65 miles an hour, waves going well above 15 feet, I wouldn't want to take any chances in being out on the water. I don't want to jeopardize my own safety and well-being, but I also would not want to jeopardize my crew, no matter how big or small the size of the crew itself is. This is a situation where I would have to be hesitant and fall into that timid captain category not that I'm afraid to take a risk but this folks was one of those risks that more um, boat captains actually avoided but yet there was that one ship that didn't and this ship that was 31 years old now is no longer alive she has two survivors, but even those two survivors who survive will, um, their uh, road to um, returning to a normal life, I hate to tell you this, but I'll tell you now, is going to be um, even more challenging than they ever expected. But give, given Elmer Fleming's um, last attempt to lure the Christian Sartori to the raft had failed because of of the last distress flare having gotten soaked in water, what new recommendation was made by the U.S. Coast Guard Board? Well, the board uh, put in a, a recommendation where each lifeboat and life raft on all Great Lakes cargo vessels 
would be equipped with six red parachute-type flare distress signals, including sources to launch them. So prior to the Carl Bradley sinking, the um, each lifeboat and life raft on a Great Lakes vessel only had on average about three um, red parachute-type flare distress signals, but yet no sources to launch them. One thing we do have to remember is that no matter how the circumstances of a, uh, of a tragedy results in, like the sinking of this ship, recommendations do have to come into play. And something has to come out of this to ensure that the chances of a uh, tragedy like the one of the Bradley, that the, that the chances of another one like it doesn't happen again. Uh, did the board propose changes in how life jackets were to be altered? Yes. The life jackets uh, worn by uh, the Bradley crewmen didn't have what were called uh, crotch straps. I'm sure many of you all haven't heard of crotch straps before, but I'll mention it to you. These are the types of straps, or what we call divided straps, that would hold a life jacket down on a person's body by keeping them afloat on the water's surface. The, the reason for why the Bradley uh, crewmen's life jackets were different is that their life jackets required each man to manually hold down their own life jackets just to stay afloat. But this also led to other um, issues. For one, by, by requiring the men to hold their own life jackets down, it basically was a way to prevent them from, um, to prevent the life jackets from slipping off. But two, the more time that was spent trying to um, hold down the life jackets also led many of these men to struggle in their fight for survival. They, in other words, they were consuming more energy and not only, and not just keeping afloat, but by trying to hold this water jacket, life jacket down so that it didn't, um, it didn't take over their, didn't take over them in terms of their abilities to breathe in terms of, um, just, it basically, um, was forcing these men to use far more of their own energy. And the more energy consumed, the less likely that these men could survive in the, um, circ in the um, weather circumstances that they were already uh, facing. We're going to get into some uh, legal stuff here now, folks. Uh, did an attorney from Detroit, whom represented the widows of Gary Strezelecki, Raymond Kowalski, John Fogelsonger, and Earl Tolgetsky, try to get permission for interviewing Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays? Yes. However, the attorney's request got denied as the judge ruled that the hearing request did not constitute the grounds for a trial. However, the judge allowed the attorney to submit written um, 
requests or written questions to uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming. You know, it's one thing for an attorney to want to um, interview survivors. However, we need to keep in mind that even lawyers themselves are officers of the court. You know, lawyers, yes, they may represent someone, but even lawyers themselves, too, need have to have boundaries as well. Yes, lawyers want justice. Yes, lawyers want to defend their client's reputation or that of a company's reputation. But no matter what the circumstances are, lawyers are officers. They have to be held accountable for their actions as well as for the requests that they are seeking to attain. So the presence of, of attorneys alone, in, in this case questioning Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, could have had severe potential for other various uh, legal consequences to have arisen. Who knows what information the lawyers would have wanted out of Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, but the bottom line is that if it was all for personal gain, then how would, how would it have overall impacted Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming? It would have probably left them with more with more scars emotionally. That would be um, that would have been unfairly added upon what they have already uh, currently endured. Given the scope of how traumatic the Bradley sinking was to the Greater Rogers City community, did sudden shock and sadness get replaced by other forms of personal feelings? I wished I could say no on this, folks, but the reality is that it did. I would have thought that when I was first reading this book, that even in the darkest of times, that a community, no matter how big or small it may be, could find a way to work together to overcome the most tragic of circumstances and try to forge ahead and where everyone could be on the same page and keeping those um, deceased crewmen's spirits alive. Well, yes, uh, personal um, other forms of uh, personal feelings were replaced after uh, sudden shock and sadness. So after shock and sadness have passed through people's minds, Many would become anger and bitter. Do you hear that, folks? Anger and bitter? It's one thing to be angry, but who do you want to be angry at? How are you going to control your anger and your bitterness? You know, if you're upset about it, yes, you could talk to a loved one. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, talking to a, a neighbor about it. But we also have to remember in 1958, we don't have... Um, even for the children who've lost their have lost loved ones, being like fathers, uncles, brothers, a cousin, fifty six school school age children have been impacted by this, or fifty six children alone. We have to remember that uh, schools at that time in nineteen fifty eight did not have guidance counselors or even psychiatrists, let alone. So their best form of um, comfort and support will not only be through home but through the support of neighbors and even the church itself. Nothing wrong with those options, but just keep in mind, in 1958, 
There is no such thing as guidance, school guidance counselors or school psychiatrists. Besides anger and bitterness, some people will resort to finger-pointing. To me, that sounds childish, but there are sadly a lot of adults who do it. Finger-pointing isn't confined to just uh, one age uh, group of, um, of, uh, of the greater society. And if that's not all, uh, bad enough, there will be people in the community who will resent Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays on their survival. To me, that is a cruel and um, unkind um, measure for people within the greater community of Rogers City who now feel that it's okay to, um, to point the fingers to bear resentment towards two men who didn't ask for a tragedy to happen. They didn't ask for 33 of their fellow crewmen to die. They don't understand why they, they, they got spared. They may never know the full answers to why they were saved and the 33 other men weren't. They do know that 33 other men were praying as hard as they were. They know that, that 33 other men were being looked after by God, on, by God himself on the night of November 18, 1958. They know that God can perform miracles. They know, the two of them know that they are living proof of a miracle that they survived. They don't understand why, why the other 33 crewmen did not have their prayers answered. But let's just keep in mind that nothing, nothing terrible has happened to Rogers City until now. And it's like that old saying goes, it only takes one situation, one incident... Not so much to ruin a person's reputation, but let alone that will either make or break a community's um, sense of uh, security. Make or break to maintain a community's sense of innocence, even as the people in the community are still coming to terms over just how um, horrific the loss, the loss itself is turned out to be, given that 33 out of 35 crewmen not only were not coming home, but are lost for good. I mean, 15 crewmen, their bodies will never be found, but still, for those bodies that have been found, finding peace and closure is nothing simple nor easy. As for Elmer Fleming, he spent the rest of his life Enduring survivor's guilt. Maybe he was thinking to himself all this time, you know, maybe I shouldn't have lived. Maybe I should have died with all the other men who, who didn't make it. And yet here I am alive. Is life even worth living still? Knowing that so many of my other fellow brothers aboard the Bradley, including the captain above me, didn't make it. So Elmer Fleming has will sadly spend the rest of his life having to endure survivor's guilt to getting a cold shoulder, a.k.a. a mean look from people in his own hometown, Rogers City, including gossip from all corners of town. This is not fair, folks. 
you know, yes, it might be easy for one to say, oh, I wouldn't have done that to the person and all. I think it's fair to say that we've all been guilty of rushing to judgment. Um, we've all been guilty of doing some things in our lifetime that we're not proud of having done. We certainly hope that by now we've learned from mistakes, but sadly there are people out there who choose to make those same mistakes over and over and don't care about the consequences of their actions. You know, it is fair to say that it's not so much 1958, but yes, there was a time when um, perhaps people knew what was appropriate and not appropriate to tolerate, but they knew how how to go about properly conducting themselves in public, even if they may not have necessarily agreed with someone else's views or agreed 100% on the outcome over a matter. But when you've lived in a community all your life where nothing terrible has happened and now something so traumatic has happened where so many men from one town are now gone, yeah, people's uh, emotions are not going to be secure. People are going to do things that are um, very unbecoming. So if it's bad enough for what Elmer Fleming dealt with, Frank Mays, Frank Mays' own friends and neighbors avoided him in the aftermath of the Bradley sinking. Mays himself said the following many of times after the ship's sinking, and this is in quotations, folks. Listen carefully. Had I done something wrong by surviving? I have to wonder that I have to wonder about that myself too. Had I done something wrong by surviving? In other words, is it fair for anyone to survive something so horrific and tragic like what Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming endured on November 18, 1958? I say yes. Because someone, or rather a group of men, should be given the opportunity, opportunity to tell their story of survival, but also be allowed to keep the flames alive in remembering those whom perished along Lake Michigan's waters on um, November 18, 1958. And yes, God looks after survivors and the deceased. No price tag can ever be placed on a human's life. In other words, you know, none of us cost anything. None of us, you know, none of us come with a price tag of a million dollars, folks. And, how do I say it here, um, People, however, uh, grieve in their own ways for better or worse. The loss of the Carl D. Bradley now appears to divide Rogers City more so versus unifying her people, all in the name of only two men surviving, whereas 33 men didn't. So it leads me to wonder if, say, 10 men or more, let's say if 10 men or more had survived, let's say between 10 and 15 men survived, is it possible that maybe the city, the, the people of Rogers City would have been a little bit more unified and not been so perhaps quick to rush to judgment that 
that the, that the number of survivors who survived were in the minority versus the majority? It's possible. But because only two men survived, and so many didn't, it's very hard for, um, for those who had lost their loved ones to accept the fact that the, you know, to accept the reality that their husbands, their sons, their uncles, their brothers, or their cousins are not coming home. But yet two men are going to come home to uh, not only their wives, but to their children. And yet here's the rest of us left to fend for ourselves, to wonder how are we going to support our families. You know, yes, there's always those what-if questions, people. But is it fair to take your anger out on two men who never asked for this to happen? Yes, who went out into a storm. Yes, Elmer Fleming was was the first mate. Yes, he may have, yes, he did agree to Captain Roland Bryan's decisions to, um, to take the ship out into these waters. You know, I'm very thankful that Elmer Fleming, that the Board of Inquiry didn't uh, court-martial this fella. I mean, he provided every ounce of accurate testimony there was. He didn't lie to them. But yet, no matter what he and Frank Mays did, it still wasn't enough for the rest of the community. What realities uh, now lie at stake for the Michigan Limestone and Bradley uh, Transportation, uh, for, for Michigan Limestone and Bradley Transportation officials? What, do, what kind of realities do you think lie at stake for them? From uh, paying out financial settlements to families of deceased loved ones, to dealing with outstanding lawsuits. So it's one thing to uh, pay out um, financial costs in terms of funeral expenses, but now you're going to be dealing with people, um, not just people, but uh, people who worked for the uh, Michigan Limestone Company. Uh, many of these uh, people, or these uh, wives, for example, their husbands were aboard this ship, the Bradley. Now they're going to be facing lawsuits from within the community. I remember my father once said, I can't remember what it was, but he told me uh, sometime back that when he was growing up as a child, you never really heard people sue. Yes, people may have gone to court, but very rarely did people ever sue one another. If a lawsuit did take place as my dad said, there had to have been a compelling reason for it. And usually when it happened, it happened as a result of all other um, measures before that were attempted did not um, result in a proper um, outcome. So suing someone was, in, from my, the way my dad interpreted it, was that when someone sued someone, it was a last resort when everything else had failed. Of course, back when my dad was growing up, you didn't have court, uh, what do you call it, court drama television um, on to watch. Of course, <laughs> when my father was growing up, uh, he only had three television stations. And as my dad said, you know, yes, we had three TV stations. We had a knob on our television to turn the channels. We still survived, and, and that's all that mattered. 
more power to uh, what people had uh, electronic-wise when it came to televisions uh, a little over 60 years ago, and yet you all still survived. Bradley Transportation uh, Company officials will not admit that the Bradley herself could have been in poor condition around the time of, of her final trip. If officials had in fact revealed the opposite, this would have opened the floodgates to mass lawsuits. Okay, one could say this right here. Well, that's not right of the Bradley Transportation Company to now all of a sudden lie. However, at the same time, you know, if you want to do whatever there is possible to prevent the worst case scenario of mass lawsuits, you also need to protect the interests of the people you're representing. You also want to do everything you can to still maintain a good image for the company because, hey, look, I mean, this sadly, this incident could have happened to any other uh, ship, regardless of uh, transportation company on the night of November 18th, 1958. But at the same time, Bradley Transportation Company, yes, had never endured anything like the loss of a ship until now. So they are doing everything in their power, left and right, to, main, to ensure that the future of their company will still remain strong. And they, too, want to know what can be done to prevent another incident like this from ever happening. I wish everyone could see it that way, but, they're, um, but unfortunately not everybody will. And I'll tell you why here in a moment. But let's find out who uh, Christian... Bokema is. I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but Christian Bokema is the president of Michigan Limestone. He is an ardent defender behind the U.S. Coast Guard findings about the Carl D. Bradley's worthiness along the waters despite recommendations for repairs while in layup time between the 1958-1959 winter season. Is it fair to say that any settlement offer made from Michigan Limestone to the victims' families ran the risk of being countered with lawsuits, resulting in failure on both ends coming to a mutual agreement, a.k.a. settlement? Yes. And this is uh, another situation here, folks, that no matter what the uh, company can do to help compensate for the loss of so many families, loved ones, no matter what their offer can be, there is an there's a simple answer. It will never be enough in the eyes of the victims' families to bring their loved ones back. Well, let me just put it to you this way, folks: money can never bring a loved one, a lost loved one, back, regardless of how he or she passed away and the circumstances. Yes, there are. Um, Many of circumstances or what do you call it, outcomes that can't be controlled. I mean, sadly, you know, people lose their lives to gun violence. People lose their lives as innocent victims of, of someone else's carelessness on the road, like, you know, drunk driving. And then, you know, people sadly lose their lives to cancer, even when they have sought every available treatment there is to... Um, that could help ensure uh, the prolonging of their life, knowing that their um, quality of life will still be somewhat decent. 
no matter what the end outcome is, yes, we grieve. We wish that the individual or individuals would be back. But while, yes, you know, families are entitled to proper compensation based upon the circumstances at hand, we have to remember that no matter how much proper compensation you get, it's not. It's never going to bring a loved one back. But the best thing that that any family can do is try to use the money in a pro, in a relevant way. Say like using the money towards um, a scholarship for the deceased person in their name, um, doing um, charitable acts that that the uh, deceased loved one may have even been a part of him or herself as a means of keeping their spirit alive. So the bigger question is, is that no, when I'm on the air again with you all next, is that um, will there be a settlement? And if so, how do the, these uh, families who have lost their loved ones go about moving forward with their lives in the wake of a settlement? But to uh, wrap this up here, that uh, prior to the Carl D. Bradley sinking, rapport had been incredibly solid between Michigan Limestone and Rogers City's people. But how quickly everything changed once the Bradley went down, aka vanished, to where finger-pointing and bickering existed between current employees at the plant as well as former employees along with victims' families. This divisiveness became the new norm to where neither side was willing to reach middle ground. Just because you reach middle ground, it may not mean that that you find closure overnight, but when you seek middle ground or some form of resolution, it's the first step in the right direction towards, towards seeking closure. That does come with time. As I said before, early on, I'd say it again, sadly, it only takes one incident to change the way a community um, grieves not just grieves, but how a community looks at life and how they channel and how the, the, the people in the community channel their anger, their emotions. Because when you don't channel, when you don't, how do you call it, when you don't properly channel your anger and emotions, you will do things that are unbecoming. You will do things that... Um, that in some instances you can't take back. And that's sadly what Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays are now seeing. They're seeing people whom they were friends with, people whom they thought were their, were dear friends, not only to them but to their families, are now turning their backs on them. And there is this little saying, and I probably did share this with you all from a previous podcast series, but this phrase is the following, ignorance is bliss. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be ignorant and enjoy being ignorant and not having any remorse for your actions. And that's what I'm afraid is happening now in Rogers City, is that people are becoming ignorant, and yet they don't care about how their actions impact, most notably, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays. I'm not saying that everybody in Rogers City has turned their backs on those two men and their families, but it seems like a, a, many are, and they're doing it for the wrong reason. 
So just keep in mind that if, you know, it's one thing to be ignorant, but if you start becoming ignorant and not having any remorse for your actions, then it just goes to show you that you find being ignorant as the new norm. Ignorant without limits. Ignorance without limits. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and while, yes, this uh, podcast episode may have um, brought results that most of us would have hoped had not happened, most notably to men like Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, we will also learn more about how these two men do go forward with their lives as best as they can. I can't imagine being in either one of these uh, men's shoes, knowing that the that so many in the community now resent me for the fact that I survived and so many didn't. I don't know why they survived, but they but they did. And they should be allowed to tell their stories of survival to the greater public. They should be allowed to keep their fellow brothers' spirits alive. Their living is is um is solid testimony, in my opinion, because don't think for one second that any one of those other 33 men would give anything in the world to be in Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming's shoes just to have had a chance for survival. Well, thank you again uh, for listening as always. And, um, and uh, for all of you who have been uh, so faithful in listening to my podcasts, uh, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. You all are um, amazing listeners. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to sharing uh, with you all more about Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. Take care, uh, good night to all of you wherever you may live, and stay safe.